Okay, now I know that uh, it's always a little bit tenuous when the worship pastor gets up to preach, um, but this week you have the bass player coming up to preach, which is even scarier, so don't all crowd around the doors as you flee the room. No, I'm joking. Uh, Tim is on vacation this week, and it is my joy to continue in the series that we've been doing. Uh, We've been talking about encounters with God. Now, we started in the New Testament, we talked about... um, face-to-face encounters with Jesus, right? Um, and, and some of the ones that maybe you don't see as often. And now we're going back to the Old Testament, and we're looking at face-to-face encounters with God in the Old Testament. We're going to see what we can glean from these stories and scriptures, these true stories and scriptures. Um, and today we're going to be kind of hopping between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The scripture is not going to be on the screen because Tim is trying to force you to bring your Bible. And so you're going to, and this is, this is a week where you're, you, it's really going to be handy if you actually have a physical Bible because we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15 and Hebrews 6. And so if you're on the phone, you're going to have to tap really fast. But if you have it in your hand, your your Bible in your hand, you can kind of go ahead and mark those two. So I just wanted to uh, give you a little bit of context for where we're going to be in Genesis 15. Uh, This is God's covenant promise to Abraham, okay? And uh, I'm, at this point, he is Abram. He hasn't been given a new name, Abraham. And so if you hear me call him Abram or Abraham, it's the same guy. I might even call him Abe. You don't even know. So just that's all the same dude. And, and this is a really interesting one because a lot of these encounters with God that we're familiar with, like Moses on Mount Sinai or the burning bush or Isaiah, uh, when the train of his robe fills the temple with glory, they're, they're really flashy, and they kind of stick in our memory. And this is kind of a less famous encounter with the Lord, but there is an incredible, incredible gospel message uh, where, he, where God foreshadows the cross 4,000 years before it takes place. And so that's where we're diving in today. And so last week we talked about how God gives Uh, God gave Abram a new purpose as he initially called him out of the land of Ur. Uh, He gave him new purpose, and through that, he was able to endure hardship. And we can do that same thing. We can endure hardship, too, because of the new purpose that we have in a life with Christ. And this week, we're going to discover that God himself is our anchor through both hardship and through blessing. Okay? Because part of the covenant promise was, was some tough stuff was said, but also some really wonderful blessings as well. And, and we need faith and we need uh, an anchor for our soul through that. Okay? So we're going to get there, but right now I just want to talk a little bit about what made Abram uh, a hero of the faith and why it's worth it that we continue to talk about him in these Old Testament stories even now. And so I, I, I want to preface this by saying, like, not every biblical hero is worth emulating. Like, Samson being a pretty good example. He, was, he had a pretty messed up life. And it's just a reminder that we're not pedestaling these guys because they got everything right. But in some key moments, they did get it right. Okay? Abram is a fallen human being just like you, just like me. He makes mistakes. They're very publicly known. But we're going to focus today on what he gets right. Okay, so this is Genesis 15, verses 1 and 2. 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Skip down to verse 5. And he brought him outside and he said, Look to the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God and counted it to, and God counted it to him as righteousness. That's the phrase that we're going to hang on to for just a minute. Now is the point where we're going to flip over to the New Testament and look at Hebrews 6. Now Hebrews 6 verses 13 through 19 is kind of like a, a New Testament commentary on this same passage that we just read in Genesis. And so if you have time this week, I would encourage you to read that chapter and especially verses 13 and following because it will really help you get a clearer vision of what's going on here. But for right now, um, we're going to skip ahead to verse 17. And so God is about to give Abraham this huge covenant promise, all right? It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. That's the covenant, okay? And so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Underline the word hold fast, okay? The words hold fast. And then this part right here. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain. Underline the word anchor for the soul. Hold fast and anchor for the soul. We're going to hang out there for just a minute, but first it's a little bit of story time. So when I was 12 or 13 years old, I think I have a picture of, of me at about that age. And when you see it, you're going to think, wow, that guy is really skinny. But all I see is I think I could take him now, you know, and that's still encouraging. Okay. Uh, and, and when I was this age, when I was 12 or 13 years old, I got it into my head that I was going to build a boat. And I scoured the internet for plans, and I found the plans to build a small little paddle boat, basically, um, called a one-sheet skiff. And, you, and it was called that because you take one sheet of plywood and cut it up, and then you could make a boat that would hold an adult in, out of just that little bit of lumber. And so I went down into my basement, stole all of my dad's tools, and worked and worked and worked, um, and worked for a really long time on it, and actually made something that would float, kind of, for a little while. You'd have to bail it out eventually, but it would stay generally afloat. And, uh, and so we'd go to the lake and, and paddle around in the thing. Um, but throughout that process, I learned a lot about boats and boat building and the terminology of different uh, parts of the boat. And one of the best memories that I have of, of course, my name is Jason, so I had to name it the Argo. And if you don't get that, then you need to brush up on your Greek mythology a little bit. Um, but one of the best memories I had is I had paddled out a little ways out onto the lake and, uh, and then got really tired and didn't want to paddle back in. And so my dad had a 14-foot um, a little boat that they would, you know, pull us in the tube or whatever. And so they, he pulled around and threw out the tow line to me. And so I just held, you know, what we would boogie board on or whatever. And it was great. It was like 
you know, I was kind of cruising along in the water, and of course the boat was not designed for that, and so it was like bucking up and down as I went, and everything was going smooth until he turned, but there was a keel in the middle of the boat, and it just made me go straight, and so it kind of like started to tip me over. It's a wonderful, fun memory, but one of the things that I, I learned throughout all of this uh, process was a little bit about anchors because you need an appropriate anchor for the size boat that you have. Um, I've got a picture here with my kids down at Dolphin Island and a rather large anchor. And uh, this anchor uh, is from a shipwreck that, that's just off the island there. And just to give you some reference, I wanted, like, it, it wasn't bolted down or anything. Like, they just set it there on this concrete pad, like with the chain and everything. And it took everything in my strength to lift up three links of the chain. And that thing is huge, and it is heavy. And my goodness, if you put it in my little one-sheet skiff, then the whole thing would be at the bottom of the lake, right? And so having an appropriate size anchor for the vessel is a really, really good thing. But here's the thing about an anchor. When you're using an anchor, you don't just go, stop your boat, and then drop the anchor straight down. There's an intentional design to how the anchor is shaped in order to keep your boat secure. Because if you do that, you drop the, boat, the anchor down from the boat, and then the boat can travel quite a ways around the anchor. And it might even drag the anchor along the, ground, along the bottom of the seabed. What you're supposed to do is, as you're in movement, you drop the anchor. And you'll notice it's got some blades down on the end where my little baby Mia is. You can see those blades. And the, the design of it is designed to allow one of those scoops to hit the sand, and then it digs itself in. And so an, an anchor, when it's properly used, even though there may not be any rocks around, if you are in movement and you drop the anchor, it will wedge itself into position and stop your ship. And so you can't be stationary and properly use an anchor. It also works best if your anchor actually reaches the bottom, right? It doesn't really do you much good. It might give your boat a little bit more stability in the water, but you're still going to drift one way or another unless you get that anchor all the way down to the bottom. And an anchor also works best when it's the appropriate size for the vessel. And so we would learn from Abraham's example and that he believed God, God counted it to him as righteousness, and then Hebrews tells us that that was an anchor for his soul. You see, Abraham's life was one of mastery of these big moments. His, his faith was one where uh, he could hold fast to something that was secure and the promise of God. And, and on, the, on, the, on the outside, it kind of looks like he did that pretty well. He made the most of every opportunity. And what it, what it eventually looks like is he made the most out of life, right? He didn't allow life to happen to him. He happened to life, right? If there was a diem to carpe, he carpeed it, Right? He seized the day, right? And, and he doesn't do it perfectly. We talked about last week how at the first sign of famine when he was in the promised land, he went to Egypt, which he shouldn't have done, right? But in the big moments, he exercises faith in God. And so uh, this is kind of, and, and, it, and he did it when it wasn't comfortable. Let me give you a little bit of a map of Abe's life, okay? God basically says, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to take you out of the land of, uh, the land of the Chaldeans, or I'm going to send you out. 
And Abram says, okay, where? And he says, I'll tell you later, just go, right? And then God says, I'm going to give you a land. He says, that's great, where? He says, I'll tell you later, just wander, right? And he says, God says, I'm going to give you a child. He says, how? And he says, I'll tell you later, just wait. And then God says, after he makes good on his promise of giving him a child, he says, kill your child. And Abram says, why? He says, I'll tell you later, just walk up the mountain. And in each major point in Abram's life, he had faith enough. He had an anchor secure enough in the promise of God that he obeyed without an answer. And so the big nature of Abraham's faith was that it wasn't just that he believed in God. He believed God. He believed what God said. And that's what I want us to do. I want us to have an anchor for our souls as well because it's so much easier to believe in God than it is to believe God. Believing in God can just mean just mental assent to his reality and his existence. But believing God forces us into trust. It forces us to exercise our faith in what he says. But do we really believe that what he says is true enough to cause us to take any action? That is the question. Because we can say we believe in the judgment day, right? We believe that, that, that at the end of all things, God is going to judge the earth. And that's really easy to believe in. But do we believe God that our coworker is going to be judged? Do we love the truth of God's word and this eternal soul enough to have a conversation? You see, one is information, but one gives us a very clear assignment. It puts our boat into movement. It's really easy to believe in prayer. But do you believe God that he listens? Do you believe God that he hears, that he answers? Do you believe him enough to show up Wednesday night? To allow your soul to, to long for that connection with him, to believe him that he is in that moment? Do you believe in God's ideas for caring for widows and orphans? That's a really easy thing to say, yeah, I believe in that, right? But do we believe his word? Do we believe what God says? Do we believe God that even a cup of cold water given in his name is valuable in the kingdom? One is information. One is an assignment. And what Abram did is he hung his hope in the Lord, his faith, his trust in God, and on his promises, never getting satisfying answers for why. And, and here we are in the New Testament era, we got so much more clarity about why God did what he did, right? 
We've got a big picture. We see the cross. We see Jesus. And yet, it's so hard for us to exercise this type of trusting faith in that we believe God and choose him first. And so let's look at Abram's response, okay? This is back in Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, laid each over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful darkness was upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall, not, you shall go back to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming porch, torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And so let's start at the beginning of this section. I know that's a lot to take in there, but God delivers a promise in response to Abram's question. He says, Abram, even with this faith, he asks this question, how do I know, right? You've called me out of this land, and at this point, he doesn't have Isaac yet. You called me out of this land, out of my home. You've called me to this land somewhere, and, and you've promised me a child. How do I know? How do I know? And God says, bring me some animals. And Abram says, all right, say less. I got it. But now, what Abram does next is interesting. He cuts him up, right? God didn't tell him to cut him up, right? He just said, bring me the animals. So did Abram disobey God? No, he just knew the assignment. He knew what was coming next. And we don't really know what's coming next because we're not part of that culture, right? But this was how, you got to remember that at this point in time, this is an ancient oral storytelling culture, right? And so what we do whenever we have a big promise to make or a contract to sign is we literally print out a piece of paper and we sign it, right? How boring, right? It, it, would, it would be like, like this means something, right? And, and so what, what it's communicating is that these animals, if both parties don't keep their word, what you're saying is, may I be cursed like these animals have been killed, right? May I bring upon a curse. May my body be mutilated. May the birds feast of my flesh, right? Like, kind of gross, right? Vivid, but really effective, right? So imagine this, all right? We're going to have a wedding. We're going to have it in the sanctuary. Now, Stryker, I need you to go and get me a heifer. Do you know what a heifer is? Have you ever been like, oh, that's a cute cow? That's a heifer. Once you get a heifer, once you cut it in half, 
And while it's still dripping blood, I want you to lay it in the center aisle. Okay? The bride's going to love it. Okay? <laughs> that, 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 vivid, right? Like kind of gross, but vivid. And it's going to stick with you, right? And it's probably going to stick with you your whole life. There's some cost involved in all of these animals. Okay? And so there's, there's a financial cost involved. There's, there's action that has taken place and so it's, it's this solemn moment, but it's, it's, it's a very, very serious ceremony. You don't go into this lightly. And the animals represent the curse that is to take place if you don't hold up your end of the deal. Let's read verse 12 through 16 again. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful darkness fell upon him, and the Lord said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not there, be servants there, they'll be afflicted for 400 years, that I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you'll be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, There's some interesting things going on here. I feel like this differs a good bit from when God put Adam to sleep to remove the rib, right? I don't think this was just like, have a nap. I'm going to talk to you about a few things. I think that like, there is a darkness that comes over Abram in order for God to communicate dark things. Okay? The, the weight, it's almost like the weight of, and terrifying glory of God's presence couldn't be appreciated while conscious. And so Abram was put into this unconscious state or semi-conscious state in order to understand the weight of the words of the Lord and the power of of the ceremony and the power of the one performing it. And so what I want to warn you about today is this whole series about encountering God. We, we have, if you're a believer this morning, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And we get very comfortable with the idea of walking around with the Spirit in us with this still small voice. But part of the nature of that Spirit is very uncomfortable. He, he, he is awe-inspiring and, and tremulous. A, a, a darkness fell on Abram when the word of the Lord came. And he spoke some really hard things. One of the most interesting things to me in here is, is what it says about the Amorites. The, the question is, why doesn't God just give Abram the land now, right? He said that he is going to allow Abram's descendants to be slaves for 400 years because God's justice against the Amorites, it's not ready yet. And so his justice does not come until the right time, even at the detriment to those he wants to bless. He is slow 
to anger and abounding in love. And, and he's showing that to the Amorites, who he knows will not turn from them. And so he sees Israel enslaved for 400 years before destroying the Amorites. And so when, that should answer a question that many of us have had, which is when the Israelites came back to the land, what about the people who were living there? Well, they had 400 years. They had 400 years of building up wrath for themselves. And they never turned to the Lord. So, God's promises are not always comfortable. They don't always look like money in our pockets and comfort in our lives. But they are good because we are entering into his sovereign plans. We are a part of his sovereign plan. Let's read, starting at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the river, to the great river, the river Euphrates, and, and so on. So what is, this, what is this pot and torch? That sounds a little bit strange, a little bit interesting. And the, these words in the original Hebrew apparently are, I don't speak Hebrew or read it, and so somebody told me they're difficult to translate. Um, but basically, uh, the smoke and the blaze are basically what it comes down to in our common English vernacular. Smoke and blaze, right? And it's the same word that's used to describe God's presence and God's glory on Mount Sinai when Moses comes out of, uh, out of Egypt, right? And, and it's the same word that's also used for the cloud by day and the fire of night. It's the same word that we translate to Shekinah glory even. And so there's this concept that it's, it's, it's glorious to, to look at. It's intense. Uh, it wasn't comfortable to be around, okay? Uh, but it, it was, I, I love what it's doing because it's, it's giving a people a reference, Right? Because God's promise, paired with his manifestation of his presence in, in smoke and fire, e should equal that Israel knows that this is the same God. Right? This is the same one who spoke to Abram when they see the fire by day and the pillar of clouds at, at, by night guiding them out of the land of Egypt. It, it should be a very stark reminder that that is who is at work here. And this is the most important part of, of this section. Uh, in, in the ancient culture, what would happen was all these animals that were cut up and laid in a row, both parties would go through in order to make the covenant uh, ceremony complete, right? But on occasion, if there was a king that needed to make a covenant with somebody who was lesser than himself, then he would come and only the other guy, the servant or the lesser king, would go through on their own. And so what God is communicating by this is that he is, is foreshadowing the cross and humbling himself, take, literally taking the role of a servant and going through by himself. He doesn't allow Abram to go through. And it's, so what he's saying is, listen, Abram, I'm going to give you this land, right? And, and if I don't hold up my 
end of the deal, then I'm going to be, allow myself to be cursed. I'm going to allow my immortality to become mortal. I'm going to allow my immutability to, uh, to, to be mutilated, right? I'm, I'm going to allow a curse to come upon myself if I don't keep my end of the deal. But also, if you don't keep your end of the deal, I'm going to allow that stuff to happen to me still. I will take on the curse if you don't hold up your end. This is the gospel. This is very clearly the gospel because salvation is not a cooperative effort, right? God himself came down and took on the curse of the covenant for me, for us. And Isaiah uh, 53 verse 8, it says he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people. His body was allowed to be mutilated. His immortality became mortality. He left behind everything that would separate him from humanity to become fully human in order to take on this curse in my place. I'm going to allow the band to, to come on up. Um, And as we wrap up here, I, I just want to remind us that the hope that we have in the gospel is an anchor for our souls. The hope that we have in the fact that King Jesus came and died in our place is an anchor for our souls. And every problem that we face is, is just a problem that we have with sinking that anchor deep into the truth that we already know. I mean, think about it. Like, if you are consumed with worry, it simply means that you're struggling to trust his wisdom. If you, if you have uh, self-image issues, if you hate yourself, you, you, you are not trusting, you're not sinking your anchor down in his grace. Come on up, we're gonna do the last song. Um, if you struggle with anger, then, then you don't trust God in his justice. If you constantly disobey, even though you know better, you aren't trusting that his way is better and your anchor isn't coming down all the way. You're putting your hope in your finances. The anchor is sitting halfway between the boat and the bottom of the sea. And you're drifting. You know, I, think, I like to think about it this way. We have, my kids have incredible faith. They've got a really big boat-sized faith. And there's something that happens throughout the course of our lives where they're, the vessel that they have, 
they can't go out into the deep water, right? They don't have experience, they're not old enough, they don't have maturity to handle the amount of faith that they got. And so there's a limit to where they can go. They're just hanging out in the bay, right? And as we grow older, our ability, our maturity, where God is calling us to, the boundaries expand a whole lot. We're able to come out into the, out of the bay and into the deeper water. But if we don't have the right size anchor, then we're going to be tossed around by every form of doctrine. We're going to hold fast to a rock, not an anchor. It's not going to be the right size. The anchor's too small. The boat's just going to drag it, right? If we don't really put our trust in God, then it's really easy to just drift in life. God is calling us to a deeper level of faith, a deeper level of trust to believe God, not just believe in God. To put our boat into movement and anchor ourselves deeply in the hope and the truth of his word. And so if, if that's you, if that resonates with you today, and you go, okay, so what's, what's next? I, I know that I need, I want to strengthen my faith in the Lord. If you've never, if you've never even considered putting faith in God, I, I encourage you now, just be honest with the Lord about your failings. And say, Lord, I, I, I've been trying to navigate the deep water by myself. And I need you. I, I, I admit, I've been trying to make salvation a cooperative thing. And I can't save myself anymore. I need you to take over. And put your faith in the Lord for the first time. But if you're a believer this morning, and, and you want to increase the size of the anchor, Here's what you can do. Just like Abram did, go to the Lord and say, how do I know? How do I know? He's not afraid of that question. He, he can show you his faithfulness. I, I, he can show you the path. And, and, and with, the same, uh, with the same heart as the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's how we come to him, right? And he will respond. To that question. How do I know? Second thing you can do is major in the majors. So many of the distractions that make you drift in this life and you pull up the anchor prematurely is because you're, you're focusing and, and, and tunnel visioning on the news or on something on Facebook's algorithm that it keeps showing you over and over again. Let me tell you right now, like I've done a lot of research on how to have a Christian YouTube channel, and do you know how to do that successfully? You bash other Christians, because that's what people are watching. That's what we're drawn to. That's what we find entertaining. We major on the majors, okay? Major on the majors, and allow the salacious things or the bickering or whatever 
to drift away and allow Jesus to become large in our sight. Allow the things of earth to go, grow strangely dim. And major on the majors. And the third thing that you can do is get the boat moving. Put your faith into action. Put your faith into your hands. Put your faith into your feet. Not just your head. And do what you know is right, even if it doesn't feel right. We're going to sing um, a song called Lay It All. And this is, this is all, what it is. We're laying our anchor all on Jesus. Okay? No matter the, the good stuff that's going on in your life, no matter the hard stuff that you're going on, that's going on in your life, you can cling to Jesus. And so we're going to put that into practice right now.